Did I mention I love him? I appreciate the music and the special music and everything going on around here. It's been a great blessing to me, and, and Debbie and I are thrilled again to be with you tonight. And uh, it's just an honor. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you for being here. I want to preach tonight out of the book of Acts, chapter 17. So we started off today at 5 o'clock. We started talking through some things that we deal with. We started talking about the characteristics of suicide and what they look like and what God's Word has to say about it. It's unacceptable to God. God has a plan for our life. He has an expected end that He gives us. He, he knows exactly uh, how long we should live, what he's going to do with us, how he's going to use us. I don't know about you, but that's some pretty great news. And uh, I'm thankful that God has a plan for my life in pain and hurt and hard times and bad times, when I fall into diverse temptations, when the trials are real, when they're relevant, when I'm going through them. God has a plan for us, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that God has a plan for us tonight. So I, I got a question for you, and there's a lot of prior service people and, and law enforcement here and stuff, and you may know the answer to this question, but I've been trying to figure out for a long time why different branches of the service call helicopters by different names. In the Army, we call helicopters choppers. In the Air Force, they call them whirlybirds. Uh, in the Navy, they call them helos. And in the Marine Corps, they go, dat, 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 dat. No, I'm... <laughs> the jokes are getting thin around here. I, I almost came with you with, I couldn't figure out what Marine stood for. Does it stand for men always riding in Navy equipment or for muscles are required, intelligence never expected? I've been, I've been struggling with that one over the years. And if we didn't pick on each other's branches of service, we would have none. And... Uh, uh, but thank God for each of you, and thank you for your service to the police, to the communities, to the military. It's a wonderful thing to be able to serve alongside you guys and uh, to be able to do this. And, and so far, no one's really picked on me about my New England, New York accent. And I'm thankful for that because some churches get kind of haughty about that, brother. They really do. Yeah, some places you go, it's like, hey, brother, you know, you're, you're in North Carolina. We don't speak like that around here. And uh, so I'm, I'm glad that you guys are cool with that and you're, you're like, it's okay. So when you get to chapter 17, if you can go to verse 15 and stand with me if you can. If you can't, stand with your heart. I'm going to go ahead and read these first few verses and then I'll introduce the sermon tonight after praying. And uh, I love the Word of God. I love that the Lord allows us to open it and expound upon it and live with it. So thankful. And the Bible says tonight in Acts chapter 17 and verse 15, And they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens, and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. Lord, steer our spirits. And oh, we love you, as our dear brother said, and, and uh, that song that that teenager wrote, how that touched my heart tonight. God, we come to you, and you've already done a work through your music service. You've done a work through the teaching time. You've allowed us to read your word and study it today. And God, I almost feel selfish or unworthy to ask this, but would you continue to work? Would you do a work in our lives tonight? Would you open our hearts? Would you open our minds? Would you open our souls Oh, God, that we would hear you, that we would, uh, we would shut off the distractions and, and think only about you and your word. We're so thankful for your word, dear God. Uh, we're so thankful that we get to open that tonight. We beg you, Lord, if there's one among us, 
oh God, maybe they're watching, maybe they're sitting here in the room and they have not accepted Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior. God, we beg you that tonight would be their night of salvation. And God would be quick to give you the honor and glory. You alone save. You alone change lives. And Lord, as we think of changing lives, there are many in here that are hurting tonight. And Lord, physically and mentally and spiritually, some people in this room have been through great trials. Lord, some have stood at death's door. Others have been through the hurt that only this world can give. And we pray that on this night, Lord, on this night we can take some of these pains and give them to you. On this night we can turn off guilt. On this night we can turn off anger. On this night, Lord, would you give us all we need to be different because of you. Not because of something I say, but because of your word, because of your promises, because you are a great God. Oh, Lord, we ask these things and we beg you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. So here comes Paul. He's coming across to the city of Athens. And Athens was like the center of the world a couple thousand years ago. I mean, there was no other place to go. So if you think today there's a lot of centers in the world, some people think New York City and and, uh, uh, Los Angeles, Chicago, Houston, whatever the case may be, are centers in the world and Hong Kong and, and, and we could go in different directions in Shanghai and China, Beijing, whatever the case may be. We could name Moscow. These are centers of the world. Athens was the center of the business world at this time. Everything that went on kind of went through Athens. And we remember that the Apostle Paul knew Athens well. He had sought out Gamaliel to be trained. And uh, it was hard, man. And then they had the University of Athens. So the University of Athens was a big deal. So if you got to go to the University of Athens back then in this day, If you got to go to their college and receive their education and go through their things, that was a big deal. It was kind of like saying my son went to Harvard. Or in our parts, we we like to be able to say on a secular side, you know, my son went to Clemson or something like that. Because we think the Clemson Tigers are pretty cool. Do, Do we got any Tigers people around here? Yeah, we haven't lost a football game at home in years. Isn't that? That's a blessing right there. Praise God, I picked a team and they stunk when I picked them. So maybe they should pay me some money because I've, I've been hanging around with them and winning national championships and, and, and things of that nature. But here these people are and, hey, my son or my daughter went to the University of Athens. It's a big deal. It's a really big thing. This is a city that people want to go to. It's like the center of a secular world. So Paul goes there and he shows up and those that conducted him, those that brought him there, he gets there. Paul's not there by himself and right away he looks around. And the Bible says he sees the city's given over. It's all idolatry. It's all about idols. It's all about worldly things. It's about worldly pleasures. Does it sound familiar? Boy, we don't have to go very far to go to Asheville or Greenville or, or, or Raleigh or Charlotte or any of these types of cities, and we can see the cities wholly given to idolatry. I can remember in 1989, I was stationed in Washington, D.C., and I remember as a kid from Connecticut, I was blown away that I got to go to Washington, D.C. It was so cool, and I remember I got there, Debbie was in nursing school in the Army down there in Texas, and I kind of got there by myself and had to navigate an apartment in a good area and go through some of those things, and man, there I am going in the Pentagon and all those things, and I remember driving around the city, and I liked it so much, I told my brother, I said, man, you should come down 
on here. This place is great. You need, and he moved with me. He's been living there ever since, man. He's, uh, he's retiring from the school system there in Alexandria uh, School. No, actually, he's in Fairfax County now. But, man, I remember looking around the city, and I was so impressed by the cathedrals and the churches. And I can remember going down New York Avenue in Rhode Island, and, and there were these major churches there that had been there hundreds of years. And I, I always, even then I wasn't saved, but I was, I was taken aback by the architecture. I, I remember going by the then uh, embassy for the Soviet Union, man, and it just felt dark when you go by that place and all the different things. But as soon as you came out, there was a cathedral there. And as soon as you came out, they could see the freedom at work in Washington, D.C. And years went by and uh, we came back and became missionaries. And I went to the D.C. area to Lighthouse Baptist Church, see Pastor Philip Bishop there. And uh, I remember as we went into, as I went into Washington, D.C., I, I took a journey by myself. Debbie was home taking care of the kids and schooling them. And as I got up there, I looked around the city and I said, what happened to all the cathedrals? What happened to all the statements of in God we trust? There were signs everywhere outside the embassy there for the Soviet Union. What happened to all the statements we used to make as a country? It was all gone. I wanted to say, man, we need to get our churches here. We're losing our government. We're losing our main city. That's what Paul's talking about. He says we're losing it. The city's wholly given to idolatry. Somewhere along the way, this upper education, this higher crust, this high brow found it necessary to push everything out and just get more educated. And there's nothing wrong with education. I have a secular college degree, a few of them. Uh, And there's nothing wrong with any of that. But when we're pushing everything away and Paul's saying, you need to go get Timothy, you need to go get Silas and get them here. We got some ministering to do right here in Athens. Because again, they're thinking this is the center of everything. Everything in Athens is being sent out. Athens is the center of commerce. Athens is the center of all these things. And we want to get the word out. We want people to know what's going on. And and I believe that's what's going on. I want to share a few points with you, I think, from chapter 17 today. And the first point I want to share with you, I think we just read when we look here, and we're going to see more of it here in chapter 17, because of our why we must be saved, why we must uh, accept God as a country, why we must be involved. I think the first point is because of our complete dependence upon God. No matter what we say, we've got a complete dependence upon God. We can't even breathe without God. We can't do anything without God. As a Christian, we can't operate short of the Holy Spirit of God. And, uh, and, and so he's sending away, he's sending for Timothy, he's sending for Silas. And we get here, he says, Therefore disputed he, Paul, in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily, them that met with them. You know, Paul didn't wait around for people to show up. He said, I've got a ministry. I've got to get at it. I've got to work with these people. And I'm amazed that the first place Paul went was to the synagogue. He said, man, I'm going over here with my brethren over here. And I'm telling them, you're still waiting for God. And I'm here to tell you he's come. He's already rose again, and uh, the advent has already occurred. There's some things that happen, and you guys better pay attention. So he's over there, and he's disputing with them. He's telling them, listen, our God is here. The prophecy that Isaiah called for, done. That stuff in Daniel, done. Everything's happening. Everything's falling in. It must be great. 
I hope when we get to heaven, we get to see some. I hope we get to go to Mars Hill in a minute here. We, when we get to heaven, we get to watch that speech on Mars Hill. And, and then he says uh, in verse 18, Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, What will this babbler say? Other some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus in the resurrection. Isn't that a terrible thing? Man, he's preaching Jesus in the resurrection. They're saying he's a babbler. He's crazy. He's nuts. He don't know what's going on. And he's dealing, you know, he's dealing with this guy named Epicurus. Now, Epicurus is, is, is the Epicureans God there. He's kind of a kind of a freaky dude. Now, this is what his philosophy believes. Remember, we're looking for philosophical things. We're looking for reasons that put things together. That's what they're doing there. So they're sitting around saying, you know, they're in these places and they're looking at everything and they're wondering, it rained last night. What does that mean? Traffic's backed up today. How does that affect me? Well, all these things, I mean, they are some of the silliest things you've probably ever seen trying to make sense of them. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as God's in the middle of all that. God, why are you doing this? What can I learn from this? And so here's Paul, he's dealing with old Epicurus and his people. Epicurus' belief was, do whatever you want. If it doesn't hurt anybody, just go ahead and do it. It doesn't matter. If there's a Godhead, stop you from doing it. So, you know, he's dealing with these people. He's dealing with these people who are living like it's 2022 in the United States of America. Man, you want to cheat on your wife? Just go do it. You want to cheat on people? You want to do those things? Do it. If there's a God, if there's a real God, he'll stop you. And so these Epicureans, I mean, I want to sign on to that is what they're saying. So they're sitting around and arguing with him, say, listen, if there's a real God, he would just take an eraser and blot us out if he didn't want us doing that. But again, we're not deists, what we talked about in the early teaching hour. God doesn't, he gives us this free will. So Paul's trying to make sense of it. And then he's got this group called the Stoics. And from the outside, you'd think the Stoics are all right. You know, the Stoics were led by this philosopher called Zeno, uh, X-E-N-O, and it's not to be confused with the Scientology guy who flew down, hopped in a, uh, hopped in a, a, a volcano, and, and, you know, Tom Cruise and John Travolta fly around that volcano looking for him. Not that God, but the same kind of idea. Lost, going to hell type of people. And uh, so this Zeno guy on the Stoics said, you know, if you dress right and act right and do everything right, if there's a God, it's going to be okay. Well, we know God's word says no. We all fall short of the glory of God. We can't act right. We can't do right. We can't live up to God. God's word said we all fall short of the glory of God. Uh, but these people who were Stoics, man, they dressed right. They looked right. They said the right things. They didn't want to offend anybody. They wanted to do everything exactly right. Uh, and they wanted to act like they were special. And here's Paul in the midst of them saying, whoa. You know, over here I get the Stoics dressing right, acting right, saying the right thing. And they don't know God as much as these people over here are saying, do whatever you want, party, have a good time. If there is a God, he'll stop us. And here's Paul armed with the word of God. And there's some things that are going to happen here in Athens that just blow my mind. This is what a missionary does. This is how a missionary lives their life. This is how we go on military bases and into police stations. And this is how we deal with people is we just tell them the gospel. We tell them the truth. I can remember standing out there in Las Vegas with the sheriff. It's the weirdest thing ever. They elect their sheriff, and the guy who comes in second place becomes the undersheriff. And then they have a police force. They have officers. and stuff. Some of the nicest people, one of the biggest police forces in the country. I think it's number four. 
for in the entire country because so many tourists are there in the area. Uh, they hire 100 police officers a day or something while we were there, Monday through Friday. It's just crazy trying to keep up. So many people are leaving and uh, so many people are turning over. And so between Vegas, North Vegas, Henderson, all that trying to keep up, it's a crazy, crazy time. People retire from the police and move there and join their police force out there to get hired just like that. And here they are. They're standing there and saying, listen, it's not that. Then they took him. They took Paul. He's dealing with them. He's sharing the gospel with them. He's saying, listen, it's not about looking right. It's not about dressing right. It's not about doing anything you want. It's never been about what we do. You understand that? The gospel has nothing about what we do. There's no work we can do. There's nothing we can do that can bring us to the level of serving God. We can't get there. That's why the Bible said we all fall short of the glory of God. That's why the Bible said there are none righteous. As it is written, there are none righteous. No, not one. And Paul's trying to tell them, and, and he's blowing them away. So what do they do? They take them to their leaders. They grab him up and say, you need to come with us. And I'm certain there's a discussion going on along the way where Paul's like, hey, I've been trained by Gamaliel. I, I, I get your religion. I get what you're talking about. I, I know what you people are trying to say. I see your strange gods. I, you couldn't even walk down the street and court into one Baptist historian without running into somebody who thought they were a god of some thought. It's just crazy. It's like being, uh, it's like being in the Capitol in Washington, D.C., man. There's crazy stuff going on. And they took him and they brought him on the Areopagus saying, may we know in verse 19 uh, what thou is saying, may we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest strange things to our ears, we would know therefore what these things mean. So it tells us in 21, the Lord is setting us up for what's going on here in Acts 17. It says, for all of the Athenians and the strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. So they're sitting around and they're like, hey, you're not going to believe what I learned. You're not going to believe what I've seen. You're not going to believe this philosopher I read about. You're not going to believe how all this stuff comes. They're trying to outdo one another. They're trying to uh, teach each other new things and what's going on. And they're learning these strange things. Then in verse 22, then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill. Can you imagine this? He's standing. It would be close to our Capitol Hill. It would be by our Supreme Court to be exact. And he stood on the steps in the midst of Mars Hill out there, and he said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. You know what Paul told them? All these fake gods, all these false gods, all this philosophy, the Stoics, the Epicureans, the Jews, it doesn't matter. You're all way too religious. You're too superstitious. It's not about religion. Can you imagine how that affected them when this guy said that to them? They think he's a babbler. They think he's crazy. People think we're crazy when we present the gospel. But I'm telling you what, when they listen and God convicts them, men marvel. You know, people marvel and they can't believe how God can save them. And, uh, and, and, and so he's going on there. He says, for as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him I declare unto you. Now, folks, if you went up and down the road in this time in Athens, they had these altars to these idols. And there's this one altar like upon Mount Carmel. There's this one altar. And the one altar said to the unknown God. And just a few hundred years earlier than this, it was a great plague in Athens. And they couldn't do anything. They were going from idol to idol, and their kids were dying, and their older people were dying. It, it, it was like a coronavirus on steroids ten times. 
People were dying everywhere, and the leaders of the community didn't know what to do. So they gathered up the, all these lamb and sheep, and they marched them right down. They said, whatever altar they stop at, that's the God we're going to serve forever as a people and as a nation. And you know, those lambs all stopped right there in history, and they stopped at that altar to the unknown God. But the years went by, and they forgot. They forgot who they were supposed to worship. You know, when the United States of America was founded, these Christians came from places like Plymouth and, and England and, and, and different places like that and, and, and Amsterdam. And, and we had cities like New Amsterdam that became New York. And, and people came over and they said, no matter what we're doing, we're going to America and we're going to put Jesus Christ first. In our new country, it's going to be about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But a couple hundred years went by and we knew more. And so we want to sit around and talk about things, why they're happening or why they're not. And we're not bringing God into the equation. We're not bringing God into the equation. I remember I had my gallbladder taken out one night, and I guess I had some kind of a, uh, allergic reaction to fentanyl. And so I come out, and they're like, well, you're going to go home. And they, they hit me up with some fentanyl. And next thing I know, man, I got these tubes hanging out of me. And I had this alert. Debbie, they told Debbie, he's surgery's done. He'll be out any minute. And then three hours later, she's like, where's my husband? And, and so they wake me up and said, listen, you're allergic to fentanyl. I said, well, I guess you don't have to worry about me buying any on the street, praise God. And uh, well, anyway, they kept me in the hospital overnight. They were worried I was going to have a reaction. And so they, they got me a hospital bed and, and I was in the room and the, this young surgeon came in. He was in charge of the surgical wing and he was a resident. He was a senior resident and he came by and a friend of mine, this is how messed up my friend is. He went out and got a table there at the Naval Hospital and went to Panera Bread and said, give me $300 worth of stuff for the doctors and nurses in the surgical ward at the Naval Hospital. So, I mean, people are making subs and bagels in there. So, filled the whole table with food over there. Those French toast bagels are right with God. I'm telling you that right now. And so I'm walking around. I mean, I got, you know, they got me on uh, medicine and, and uh, you know, to stop from itching. I'm kind of tired. And this doctor came in and I, we're passing out tracts and Bibles. And I'm in a room and I'm right next door to a guy who died. He died. And I'm over there with my buffet table, my tracks, and my Bible. And, uh, you know, I'm wearing a pair of jeans and a Holly Davidson t-shirt or something. And the nurse came over and said, sir, you're a religious man. Can you help next door? And I said, sure. And I went over there, and this guy's dying, and I'm sharing the gospel with him. And the daughter looked at me and said, hold on. She said, he accepted Jesus Christ last week. What does that mean? And he died. He died. I said, that means right now he's in the presence of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I was able to take out the Bible and show them from God's word. And I mean, it had an effect. All the nurses and stuff were sticking their head in the door. And I'm in there preaching to them, man. And I got an IV in me and stuff like I'm pushing around my tower. And I got my Bible. And, and people are coming in and getting bagels in the room next to me and stuff. And, uh, and they... They were, everybody just got kind of weird, you know, and they were listening and people were praying. I said a prayer to receive Christ with them and a nurse or two prayed. And so then I end up in my room and a doctor's right there. I turn around, it's like, whoa, there's a doctor right here. And he said, you know, he said, he said, I can understand God. I understand what you're saying. We need a higher authority. And I mean, he's, he's, he's convicted at this point. He said, but I just can't fit God into science. 
I said, that's because we don't fit God into science. We fit science into God. God is the creator of all these things. And I was able to work with that doctor for a couple hours that night. And what a blessing that was. And this man, he went to glory, 80-something years old, a, a Vietnam veteran, a, a retired Navy master chief petty officer. His family huddling around, accepting Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. And I'm like, God, I know why I have an allergy and an allergic reaction to fentanyl. It was so I could be with them this night. And God, I thank you for that. I thank you. It could have been anybody that God had brought in, but he allowed me to be part of that. And Paul's dealing with all these things. He's saying, listen, it's not about what you do. It's not about your works. It's not about fitting God into your belief system or your patterns. It's about fitting. In. It's about God owns it all. And we trust in him. He's God. We're not. And that's what's going on here. And Paul's standing there and he said, I think you're too superstitious. I'm here to talk to you about the unknown God. I think you're too religious. I think you need to get on. For as I passed by again and beheld your devotions, I found an altar to that unknown God whom therefore you ignorantly worship. Him I declare unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is he worshipped with man's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. It's not about what we can make. You can go to the book of Isaiah and find where they cut down a piece of wood and they, they, they polish it and sand it and dip it in gold and, and they worship it as a god. They use little pieces for kindling. Paul's stopping all that. It's not, said, this is nothing we can build. Over and over again, God's word says the same thing. It's not about our work. It's not about our building. It's not about what men can conceive. We're these finite human beings that serve an infinite, wonderful God. And we can't measure up. We can't get close to Him. We trust Him. And we believe His Word. Years ago, someone said to me after I had been hurt, and I was going through all those injuries, and I was saved, and, and, and I was trying to serve God, and I was going through that. And I remember a man named Art Greenley was a close friend of Debbie and mine as we were going through the early salvation experience and, and uh, I, making those changes in our life. And I remember Art looked at me and said, we don't have to understand God to trust him. He said, we're never going to understand God, but his word is so real and so powerful. And here's Paul trying to convey that to these people on Mars Hill. He's standing there in that government. He said, it's not about what we can make with our hands. It's not about some acronym that men can put together. It's not about what men think it never has been. It's not about what men can devise. It's about God. It's about his word. It's about believing in him. It's about trusting in him. And it says, and hath made from one blood all nations of men. We all share a common gene. If you look at our, uh, your test, if you have a DNA test done, if you send it to Ancestry.com, I found out everybody I was related to. I found out all kinds of things about myself and, and, uh, and what a blessing that was. And, and, but we all, everybody on earth has one common gene. And, and that gene goes all the way back to the beginning of time. We're all related you know, we, we, we serve a great, and made of one nation, all nations, one God, and, and, and to dwell all the face of the earth and have determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. God knows when we're going to stop breathing. God knows when we're going to stop breathing. It's God's call. But folks, with our free will, remember what we read in Ecclesiastes 7 today? Why shouldest thou go before their time? Get your free will out of there and trust me.
I have an expected end for you. That's what God's saying. And because we have a complete dependence on him, that if thou should seek the Lord, if happily they may find after, feel after him and find him, and though he may not be far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also as our own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as so much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think of the Godhead like unto gold, silver, stone, graven by hands or man's device. Wow. He's talking to these people, and they're running around there talking about the greatest temples in the world. The Temple Diana, when you went to walk in, they would say, cover your eyes! It's so bright in here, you need to cover your eyes. The gold is so shiny. And Paul's saying... When we get to heaven, when we're in God's presence, cover everything. (laughs) He's so bright. He's so beautiful. There's so much going on. Your society's got it all wrong. Folks, our society, 2,000 years later, has got it all wrong. And, and, And that's what the Lord's trying to say. So number one, why we must serve God, why we must trust God, why we must be saved. Point number one, because of our complete dependence on God. That was the long one. That was the long point, but just to understand, Paul's getting in there and explaining to these people, it's never been about you. And I have to tell you something, folks, so that you get this tonight. It took a long time for me to get this as a young man. My relationship and salvation with God has never been about me other than me accepting him. He's done all the work. It's by nothing I can do. God's not impressed with me. I'm not special. I'm not in the ministry because God said, Doug's special. I'm in the ministry because I said, God, I'll serve. And he called me to do it. And he wouldn't let me do anything else. That's why I do what I'm doing right now. It's not because I'm special. So number one, because of the complete dependency on God. And then number two, because of the command of God. Look at verse number 30 here. One verse with this point. And in the times of this ignorant, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Boy, uh, God winks at us. We got a story that we tell when we were out on deputation years ago when we went out and raised support. We've been in support raising mode three or four times over the years. But when we first went out to raise support, I'll never forget this. We, we took our boys with us and we wanted so hard to make sure our boys were going to do the right things and be good. And at the same time, we didn't want to be dictators. We, didn't, we wanted our kids to have a childhood. We wanted our kids to know people and hang out, and we wanted our kids to learn things and be ready for the world, but at the same time, we wanted the parameter where they followed the rules and things of that nature, and we realized when our kids got to churches that the pastor's kids and the missionary kids never get to have fun, so when they get together, man, the rules are out, man. They have a good time. Man, I remember my son and the pastor's kid were sliding into the altar one day like it was first base and playing football across the church. We went to one church where the pastor was playing football with our kids. The church was big enough where you could really get a good 20-yard pass across the church. You could get a good slant going and stuff over the pews. Well, anyway, we came up with some rules for our kids because we realized our kids could be kind of freaky. So we said, listen, Hey, our kids aren't perfect. I'm going to be upfront with you. We love them. They're great kids. We're thankful that God has blessed them. They have good jobs and a good life. We're thankful our oldest one is married. And uh, we have a daughter-in-law, Madeline, whom we love. We're thankful for all that. But our kids are normal kids. 
And so we would go to churches and we made some rules and the kids would fight with each other. We realized that Doug is one of those people that has to have everything just right. He's got a little bit of that OCD thing going on, at least with the board and setting up things. So we would let, he's not like that in life. His house is a disaster, right? So is our youngest son. Truth be told, mom calls the youngest son about once a month and says, can I come over? And he's thrilled. Come over, mom. I'll buy lunch. She cleans his house. But anyway, this is a kid. He makes more money than Davy Crockett. But anyway, he, he's sitting there and mom's cleaning his house. But anyhow, we had some rules for the kids. We realized that we had to set some parameters. And our first rule was this. We know you're going to mess up. We know things. You can beat on each other all the way to a church. We don't care. But when we get a few miles from that church, uh, those video recorders you're watching with your Disney movies or whatever, they go off. You clear up your hair and you make, like, make believe you love each other and you like each other right now. And we're going to brush our teeth. We're going to go into church. We're going to feel good. We're going to look good. Do you understand that? Yes, sir. And sure enough, most of the time they followed that. Well, then we got to the point where we had to have a warning system for when they messed up. Because once in a while, your kids mess up anyway. You know, so we had a warning system. This was our warning system. When a kid's messing up, we'd give you the look. We'd go, Doug, Daniel. We'd give them that look, just like that. That's all we had to do. Hey! And they'd turn around, they'd make eye contact with me, and I'd go. That meant just stop what you're doing. No one's getting a spanking. No one's in major trouble. But we're going down the wrong road. And most of the time, the kids were good with that. You know, the youngest would work the doors. He'd tell women how lovely they looked. He'd appreciate the way they were dressed. I mean, he's the nicest kid here. I can't believe that kid's not married. He's still the nicest guy. He went out with a girl for a few years, and she messed up his head. But we're working on him. He's right with God, too, that one is. If if he doesn't get married soon, I'm going to find him somebody to marry. You write that down, man. I need grandchildren. I need them now, praise God. But... But anyway, he'd work the doors. He was nice to everybody, the greatest kid you ever met. And they'd do their thing. Well, we get to this church in West Virginia, and I'm not picking on. I love West Virginia. Those are my people over there, praise God. And, and uh, uh, you know, and I used to like Marshall as a lower football team back in the day. And anyway, they had the plane crash, and I was a little kid. I thought it was cool that they turned around and became, uh, you know, double-A national champions. But anyway, we're in West Virginia, and we're at this church, and we're having some issues. We drive there. It's supposed to take us like seven hours. We spend 12 hours driving there on May 1st, 2005, in a snowstorm. It was snowing. Everything's closed. There's no place to get food. We had to get to the hotel. Finally, we found a McDonald's that was open. And you know, McDonald's people have an attitude automatically. You don't have to add a snowstorm and no other place. And they automatically have an attitude problem. I used to work at Burger King when I was a kid. I had an attitude problem. It comes with the territory. You know that, that old Burger King saying, special orders don't upset us? They upset me. I'd spit on the burgers, praise God. <laughs> what do you mean they don't want any ketchup? <laughs> Here you go, ma'am. Enjoy your... Well, anyway, happens all the time. Don't ever order special food. They're spitting on your burger. Anyway, I, I remember this. So we get to this McDonald's. We get back to the room. And, and God, I, I've repented of that years ago. But... Uh, it was the best job, too. They were coming to town. They were opening a new Burger King, and there was this cheerleader girl who wanted a job. She was working the counter, and my thought is I'm going to work the counter, too, and I got the counter. She got the counter, and, you know, the peasants were in the back cooking and stuff, and everything came crashing down. I was there one day. May I help you, please? And this guy's like, I'll take two cheeseburgers, two French fries, and two Cokes. Boom, boom, boom. There you go. Guy comes back to me and said, these hamburgers stink. I said, of course they stink. You're at Burger King. <laughs> I mean, what are you expecting? I mean, this isn't your mother's kitchen, all right? 
Well, the guy told the manager, they put me back there. I'm getting zits everywhere. I'm back on the fryer. Uh, I never got to stand next to that girl again. It got so, they fired me twice. They had to bring someone in to kick me out of there. It was so bad. I refused to leave. But anyway, so we go to McDonald's that night. They, I took nine people with me. I used to drive everybody to work. I said, listen up, we're out of here. And everybody left. They just started hopping in my car. It was the ugliest thing. But we all got a job at an egg farm. It's another, I was pretty popular when I was a kid. It was weird. I don't know why it was the weirdest thing ever. But the, the pretty girl stayed. So she had more character than I had. But anyhow, uh, so we go to McDonald's and we go to church the next morning. Everything goes well at church. The kids are acting perfect. And the pastor says, we're going to Papa Jean, whatever that Gino's, I don't know, there's a pizza place, you go, you order, you sit down, and so we go in there, and as soon as we get there, now we told our kids, when we go out to eat, no matter what we're doing, you have to sit next to one of your parents, period. We don't care if you met new buddies and stuff, they can sit with us. You're sitting next to one of your parents where we can grab a hold of you and straighten you out. You're always going to be, you know, we're responsible for you, we're at a church, you're going to sit next to us, and you're going to shut up. And so we told them, we weren't terrible parents. I, I think they turned out all right. All they ever did was go through school, get good jobs, serve God, while the other one got kind of weird, the other one. That's another sermon. But anyway, we go out to lunch, and the pastor threw a monkey wrench in things. Everybody from church is going to this one place, and we take it over. And everybody's ordering pizza and stuff. On the way there, pastor said to us three times, the best thing there is pepperoni pizza. We got there, I told the kids we're all eating pepperoni pizza, and they're like, got it, Dad, you know, pepperoni pizza. We got in there, and the pastor's like, what do you guys want? Pepperoni pizza all around. We'll all have it. Then the pastor announces to the group, he said, all the men are sitting over here, all the women are sitting over here. Right then, my youngest son, Daniel, finds this rolling chair, the only one in the place. It must have come from the office out there or something, and he's rolling with his cup under the soda machine, and he's mainlining Mountain Dew. I mean, he's drinking one Mountain Dew after another. I'm trying to get to him. I'm like, Daniel! Stop the Mountain Dew deals. I've only had seven, Dad, just seven. Just two more is my new personal record. It's all right, Dad. It's going to be. And I remember we get to the table. So I got Daniel over here. I got Doug sitting across from me. I got the pastor here. And I got this missionary going to Cape Verde, West Africa, named Todd McClure, a good friend of mine. He pastors in South Boston, Virginia now. We're all sitting at the table. And, and this weird phenomenon took place. We get the pizza. And my son's on the Mountain Dew. I get him off the Mountain Dew. I finally got him on water. Uh, everything's calming down. I thought, if I'm going to have a problem, it's going to be the kid who's had seven Mountain Dews. But I was wrong. And this is what happens at the table. The pastor says, I hate West Virginia. I hate the people. I can't believe I'm here. I hate pastor in here. That's what he said. I'm like, whoa. I said, what's going on here? You know, and then the guy going to Cape Verde, West Africa says, we hate Cape Verde, West Africa. The people stink there. There's not even McDonald's. Never mind pizza. There's nothing in Cape Verde. We hate it there. We can't stand the people. My wife cries herself to sleep every night. And I'm like, whoa, this is like being a Catholic in a confession booth. What's going on here? This needs to stop. And then out of nowhere, I see my son's lips moving. Now, we had rules. And you don't talk unless you're spoken to when it's an adult. And there's only 15 answers that you can give. We rehearse those answers. Thank you, sir. That's very nice of you. Yes, sir, I'm enjoying it very much. We, there were only 15. We printed them in like... 25 font, you could read them, you could look at them. And anyway, so we're there at the restaurant, and out of nowhere, Doug's lips start moving. And I immediately think to myself, you know, I think faster than I speak or can think. It's just crazy, man. It's a traumatic brain injury. I'm like, why is Doug's lips moving? 
And this is what he did. He said, we hate West Virginia too. <laughs> he said, can you believe it snowing on the 1st of May? And uh, he just keeps it going. At this point, I'm like, dog! <laughs> Mountain Dew kids over here waving at him and stuff going. And Doug keeps going. Do people really marry their cousins here? And why are people so messed up? Is there any good restaurants here? This pizza's pedestrian. And he's just going on. And so at this point, I'm winking at him. I'm saying, you're getting it. It's coming. The whipping's coming, man. When we get to the car, you know, Mama's going right in between those van seats. She's going back there and hooking you up while we're driving down the road. It's over. And Doug just keeps going. So I decide I'm going to kick him under the table. Because people are starting to pay attention to him. He's talking about everything West Virginia. So I pull my leg back. And I kick him under the table to shut him up. And when I kick him, the missionary going to Cape Verde, West Africa goes, Oh! He had had his legs in front of Doug's leg. And and he realized what was going on because he was a military missionary kid. And he's laughing. And at this point, Doug finally shuts up and turns all red. But he got the wink. There's something coming. Can I tell you what God's doing to us right now? Look at that verse there. And uh, because of the command of God, look at that verse 30. It says, in the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. You know what God's saying? You better get this right. Right now, you've got to pass. The wink is coming to us. It's coming. It's coming. And just like with my son, Doug, it was coming. It was coming. We want you to know we never beat our kids. No, there's, no one was hurt in that story other than, well, maybe a little bit, other than feelings and stuff like that. And Daniel had the hardest recovery from all that Mountain Dew. I mean, 3 o'clock in the morning, I go to use the restroom, and Daniel's like, is it morning yet? <laughs> Can we go downstairs and eat breakfast? Yeah, it was ugly. But anyway, then we move on to the last point. Because of the certainty of the judgment of God, why we must trust God, why we must get saved, why we must believe God. Number one, remember what that was? Uh, Remember what number one was? Because of our complete dependence on God. Number two, because of the command of God. Number three, because of the certainty of the judgment of God. Look what it says, because he hath appointed a day in verse 31 in which he will judge the world in righteousness with that man, Jesus, whom he have ordained, whereof he hath given us assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and others said, we will hear thee again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them, howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed. Among them which was Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. People got saved. But you know what happened? There's a group of people that just thought he was nuts and said, you know, I'm out of here. And then there was a group there that said, I want to hear this again. And then there was a group who got so right with God, if you study out their lineage, they planted a church. They got so right with God. So last part of the sermon, and I'm all done. We were in Germany. We were stationed there. And September 11, 2001 came, and I'll never forget it. I, I remember we watched it. I was dropping. I had an old BMW that I dropped off at a German shop to get work on. I bought it from a general, and uh, he drove me home. The shop mechanic did, or the owner Air Funk, and as we were going home on the radio, I heard on the German, we were listening to classical music. I used to do that because I, I just liked it. And there was really not a lot to listen to during the day in Germany. It was the talk radio stuff I didn't like. And 
I remember we were driving down the road and the radio got interrupted and in German they said America has been attacked. I remember I looked at the driver hoping that I was understanding what was being said and I was pretty good with my German back then and I said, Air Funk, and she'll have gone, excuse me, did they just say America was attacked? And he said, yes, they did, Air Carragher, they did. You better turn it to American Forces Network. And I did immediately. And sure enough, by the time I got home, Doug came running out of the house. He saw the BMW drive by the back windows of our apartment. And he came running around to get me, and he said, Dad, one of the towers has been ran into by a plane. And I walked into the house. I saw the second plane. You know the story. They came down. You know, everything terrible that happened. And time went by, and then and, and getting on and off base became a nightmare. Debbie worked on base. Someone tried to blow up the base that Debbie worked on, and the kids were going to be at after school one day. And a girl who went to live, she moved to Germany because one of the soldiers said, You come move with me, and I'll take care of you the rest of your life. Soldiers say that all the time. They lie. There's a reason there's protocol. There's a reason we date and court the way Bible said. There's a reason we bring parents and God into the situation. And she got over there, ended up living with these two guys. She had nowhere to live. She was working for the American government, and they were using her to get this bomb material on base so they could blow up the in and out processing center for the United States Army Europe use her to look it up. And this lady came to church on a Wednesday night. She came walking in. And boy, she was lost. I felt like the devil just came in. Pastor changed this message and basically preached to her. And that night, this woman came forward. I can still remember on the floor named Christy Allen. I can still remember her begging to receive God. And as soon as she got saved, as soon as the service ended, she walked up to the pastor and said, Pastor, if you knew somebody was going to do something terrible, what would you do? God, immediately, the Holy Spirit of God, indwelling within her heart, said, It's over. Stop it. And they called the German police. And that whole thing was foiled, and they chased after these men and caught them in Hamburg and uh, in Germany. And it made all the papers around the world because she had accepted the Lord. She had listened. She had heeded. And it wasn't long, and we turned on TV, and President Bush was saying, military people, men and women in the armed forces, remember what he said? Be ready. And boy, we started training. We started doing physical training more than we ever did. We started kicking the unit strength up to 100%. We started saying, you can't get out. We started filling up the army. We started getting our weapons ready. We knew that Germany was on the spear, that it was on the front of it, that they were going to do the attack, the 1st Infantry Division, the 1st Armored Division. We knew that those were going to be the first ones down there, and they started training in Grafenbeer, Germany. And when we were training in Grafenbeer, I went down there and trained him. And I remember I said, God, I need your help. I want to, when I'm standing up there talking to a thousand people, God, allow me to stand in front of them and tell them. And I did that several times a day. I said, God, allow me to stand up there and be bold and tell them I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So I would go through my brief and there was a general, Rusty Frutiger, sitting right there in the front row. And I remember as I wrapped up my brief and I said, I want to tell you one thing. My name is Doug Kerriger. I'm in the Distinguished Visitor Officer Quarters. It's the Sergeant Major. They hooked me up down there. I have a conference room. They sent me a whole box of bananas over there. I said, I got free bananas, Bibles, and tracts. I know Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, and I'm worried about you, and I'd love to tell you about how I met Christ. And I remember that first night, three people came. No, it was the last night. Three people came to my room. I remember that day there was a woman in that group named Jessica Lynch. 
Jessica Lynch was the lady who got kidnapped and raped, and the special forces went and whisked her out. I mean, this is, this is history taking, taking place right in front of us. And I remember that day, I really, I pushed the gospel, and, and the general never said a word. As a matter of fact, he thanked me at one point and said, thank you for being so forthright, because there was a chaplain down there, and all he was talking about was make sure your will's filled out. And uh, I, I remember that as I stood there, three men came to my room that night, a man named Brown. His name was Ronald Brown. I remember that because he was named the same as one of Clinton's secretaries of something or another. And uh, I remember that young man coming. I remember the other two names, but I won't share them with you. And that night, I opened up the Bible, and I said, there's four things you need to know to be saved. The first thing you need to know is you're a sinner. The Bible says there are none righteous. The Bible says we all fall short of the glory of God. I said, I showed them from the Bible. I read it with them. They looked at them. I handed them a track. I handed them the Bible. I said, you got it? They said, yes, sir. I went to the second step and I said, listen, the second thing you need to know is there's a price on sin. I showed him from the Bible for the wages of sin is death. I said, we've all earned death. Then I sat there and said, there's great news. The Bible says in Romans 5, 8, but God commendeth his love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, before any of us were born, Christ died for us. And I remember saying that to him and, and talking to them about the gospel. And this one, one of the three kids looked at me and said, Sergeant Major, this is really good stuff. I'd love to hear it again sometimes. So I thought the present time was right. So I told them again, praise God. I went through it all again, showing them both the words of God. And uh, I got all done, and this one guy looked at me like I was crazy and said, Sergeant Major, is there a Coke machine around here? And I remember I said, I told you I'd buy you a Coke, and I gave him an euro coin, a euro coin. And I said, hey, it's right down the hall. Help yourself. I said, buddy, please, let me give you a track and a Bible. I said, please pay attention to this. I said to the second man, have you heard enough? He says, let me think about it tonight. I'll let you know. I looked at the third guy, and as that second guy went out the door there in that conference room at the Distinguished Visitors Office Quarters in Grafenberg, Germany, the old 7th Army Training Center, I watched that third guy fall on his knees, Ronald Brown. And he was begging God to save him. He said, God, I'm a sinner. He said, I'm lost. He said, I don't know what the sergeant major just showed me, but I've needed this my whole life. And he said, God, will you please save me? I'm afraid I'm going to war and I'm scared to death. And he was so humbled and he was so real. And he, he was praying. He prayed in Christ's name. He said, Jesus, I know you're part of this. Help me with this. Amen. And he stood up and he looked at me and he said, Sergeant Major, please tell me what I need to do to get saved. And I said, Brown, you're there, buddy. And I went through it with him again. And I told him the angels were rejoicing in heaven. I told him, I said, God has had a special plan for you. And this night he saved you. You trusted him. You can believe him. He was crying. I bought him a Coke. I loaded, he took Bibles. He said, he said, my men need to know about this. He took a stack of tracks. He said, I believe God saved this night for me. I'm getting saved. He said, Sergeant Major, we're leaving real soon to go to Iraq. And he said, I'm scared. Will you pray with me? And I held him in my arms. I prayed. I could still feel him shaking and trembling. I can feel the sweat coming off of him. I can just feel it. A couple days later, I was back in Heidelberg, and the war had begun. It had just begun. We all heard about it on the radio, just like you. And I was sitting in Cinnabon in the Heidelberg PX with Debbie. We were sitting there, and I was eating my cinnamon roll. And I opened up the Stars and Stripes paper, and all three of those men that were in my office were killed. And that girl was taken hostage. There was nine people killed and they had their names listed. And I was thinking about how important this is. Paul said up there on Mars Hill, he said to them, listen, we're all going to be judged. We have this complete dependence upon God. We have this command from God. 
And then Jesus is going to judge us. There's coming a day. Folks, we're at that 